0: This is a conversation with Shashank Bengali, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times covering Southeast Asia, based out of Singapore. My discussion with Shashank concerns how Singapore has, along with countries like Taiwan, South Korea and China, managed to have one of the most effective responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. We also discuss some of the contradictions of how a Singapore, which is long associated with globalization and financial capitalism, has so far put the health of the many ahead of the wealth of a few, making sure that reforms and measures taken to control COVID-19 did not destroy and fraction its civil society. This should make for a very interesting comparison to the actions of a Donald Trump and Republican Party who, in addition to being accused of insider trading and profiting from the catastrophe that is COVID-19, are also now being accused by many of their most prominent critics, myself included, of trying to put the wealth of the few ahead of the health of the many, demanding that the U.S. put into place piecemeal reforms rather than the total and systemic ones that countries like Singapore, Taiwan, and China have used to manage this crisis. It's a very interesting conversation about this pandemic, capitalism, and reflecting on the modes of governance that have worked best in managing this crisis. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog. You can find that on Google, Apple, Spotify, and other platforms. We're the Arts of Travel podcast. We just interviewed William Yang on the response in Taiwan. We also spoke with Roy Zhong, who has been one of the most prominent voices of how the pandemic was handled within Wuhan. You can go to our YouTube where we put up great footage and videos from art and artists all throughout Asia. And for our main website, you can go to asiaarttours.com. That acts as a hub for the programs, articles, and activism we try to connect people to in Asia. All right, here's our conversation with Shashank Bengali on Singapore, COVID-19, and governance. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: I'm Shank Bengali. I'm uh, a Southeast Asia correspondent for the Los Angeles Times based in Singapore. Um, And I cover uh, the Southeast Asian region, basically uh, stretching from India to the Philippines.
0: So uh, for us as uh, a company that straddles the line between sort of uh, media and travel, Singapore has has long fascinated us. Um, It's long acted as a hub for global commerce, uh, it's long projected itself outward as a model of sort of a cosmopolitanism uh, for other regions to emulate, and so its handling of the COVID-19 crisis in conjunction with other successful models in the region, um, uh, Taiwan, Korea, and China all come to mind, has been very interesting to watch. So for... Um, Listeners who are unfamiliar with Singapore, could you um, give us a rough outline of governmental measures that have put into place and then how Singaporeans have sort of compared their government uh, and and would rate the response themselves if you did man on the street reporting with a few Singaporeans?
1: Sure. Well, I think, uh, Matt, the first thing to note is that, you know, unlike uh, you know a lot of countries where your listeners might be uh, hearing this podcast, uh, Singapore is not locked down uh, by any stretch. Um, businesses, restaurants, bars, cafes have all been functioning more or less as normally uh, throughout this entire outbreak. Uh, this is you know, somewhat remarkable given that Singapore in the early weeks of the outbreak had among the highest numbers of uh, COVID-19 uh, infections outside of China. Um, what the government did though, uh, pretty early on, and this is building on the um, experience that, that Singapore and other countries in the region had during the SARS outbreak of twenty uh, 2002 and 2003, uh, where they uh, did suffer dozens of deaths and, and were generally seen as kind of a bit off balance. Um, Singapore has invested tremendously, uh, both in its medical infrastructure um, and in its pandemic uh, response. So um, very early on, Singapore uh, began uh checking uh, temperatures and screening travelers arriving from uh, various hotspots in the world. This is going back to, to you know, early to mid-February um, and immediately uh, uh, stopped flights from, from Wuhan from Hubei Province, eventually stopped all flights from China. Um, but it took a while uh, for the, the cases to come down in Singapore um, because initially there were just so much uh, travel from China to, to the city state. Um, the other thing Singapore has done quite effectively um, is contact tracing. I think it's probably been their biggest success. Uh, with the help of uh, the Singapore police who have been mobilized on this, uh, Singapore has been aggressively um, identifying, questioning, tracing contacts of, of any known infected people. Uh, and, and they've even been using uh, surveillance cameras. Singapore has a, a you know one of the highest, uh, levels of surveillance, uh, CCTV footage, uh, cameras you know around the island here. Um, and so using that, they've been able to track down uh, pretty much anyone who's been in contact uh, with an infected person. Uh, they've also uh, recently launched an app, uh, a government-developed app that allows people to opt in uh, if they want to be notified that they uh, could have been in, in contact with someone who was infected? Whether sitting in a taxi cab, that type of thing. Uh, people can now opt in, put themselves into the system, um, and they basically, you know, using all these different tools, they've really widened the net uh, in a way that's pretty remarkable. It's a bit of a different strategy than uh, the kind of you know rampant testing that Korea uh, did, um, or the really really high tech um, smartphone model that Taiwan used. Uh, but Singapore's has been quite effective as well.
0: And for um, the the man on the street aspect, where if, if I went to uh, the raffles and sat with the biggest of bankers, or if I went to uh, just get uh, a humble bowl of, of laksa, what would be the sort of pan-societal response at the moment uh, for how people have felt Singapore's government has responded, particularly in comparison to uh, other countries that Singapore might look out to in comparison or measure themselves against?
1: I, I generally sense that people are, are pretty satisfied. Um, you know, this is a country where, as you know, uh, you know sort of nation building and, and nation preservation are, are national obsessions. And, and people are um, you know, they, they are used to uh, giving up a bit of personal freedom, whether it's uh, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, the ability to have totally free and fair elections. People have given up some of those uh, you know, kind of democratic ideals that, that we in the West might hold up um, in exchange for a tremendous efficiency, um, extreme competence in the bureaucracy uh, here in Singapore. And so I think people, when a crisis like this comes about, this is what they feel like their ministers and their civil servants get paid for. So we saw one brief hiccup um, early in the going of this crisis, which is early February, when The Singapore government raised the um, multicolored alert system that they have, called DORSCON, which is an acronym. I couldn't tell you what it stood for, but basically, this is the kind of pandemic response, the outbreak response um, system. They raised it by one level to orange, which is you know one level below the maximum. Um, And that weekend, uh, really just for one day, there was a a sort of a surge of uh, panic buying uh, at, at some supermarkets around the island, and so. Suddenly, you had shortages of, of toilet paper and noodles and rice and that kind of thing. And the very next day, that was the first time I got the sense that you know could this get out of hand, or, or are people going to to sort of get through this without too much you know difficulty? And that very weekend, the Prime Minister uh, Li Shen gave a um, very measured, uh, very well-regarded speech in which he uh, laid out the the issue, laid out the challenges, and urged Singaporeans you know, not to hoard. Uh, he assured Singaporeans that there were plenty of the supply chains were uh, functioning, there were plenty of goods available. Um, and right away, within hours, you saw the lines uh, die down at, at the markets and, and things kind of got back to normal fairly quickly. So there was that one hiccup, but I think in general, people feel the government messaging has been uh, very strong. Um, the measures have been, uh, have been quite uh, you know, less severe than in other countries and yet um, Singapore has managed to keep uh, the outbreak from getting out of control.
0: I'd like to focus in on three aspects of supply chains and, and separate them by uh, separate questions. So the first would be in commodities. I think for Americans we are the uber consumers, <laughs> we, we love our stuff and we love it fast. When we look at Singapore, where it has had to rely on uh, supply chains, sort of inter-regional and global supply chains, uh, what does it say for maybe American listeners or other listeners who are maybe panicking because they don't really understand how these global supply chains of commodities work? What does the fact that Singapore, a, a relatively tiny city-state, uh, had its PM? Uh, say that we don't need to worry about the supply of commodities? And should this give comfort uh, or can it give comfort to a more global audience who's unsure of how some of these processes work?
1: Well, I think Singapore, you know, is so acutely aware of its size and the fact that, you know, very little is produced in Singapore. It's a heavily urbanized environment. All the fruits and vegetables come in from, you know, whether it's Malaysia or Thailand or Australia or farther afield, um, you know all the other consumer goods. Many of it uh, comes in from China, and, and you know we don't really have. You know in the U.S. you're used to in some cities, you know, uh, same day delivery on Amazon. There's really not much like that in Singapore. There are you know limited things that can come to you the same day. Most of what you order, if it's um, uh, you know diapers or or other kind of household goods, um, you know you don't always get it the same day. You often have to, to wait a day or two. Um, people are kind of less accustomed to the instant gratification that we are in the US um, what we have seen um is that there have been some delays in that type of uh delivery you know my my family at the moment we're trying to get a delivery of groceries uh for the weekend and and are having trouble finding a slot uh on Redmart which is the big uh sort of grocery online grocery provider um but i've not heard too much grumbling about that i mean the the it seems like Uh, For the most part, you know, Singapore, part of its national uh, security strategy is to ensure supply chains in the region, whether it's from Malaysia or elsewhere, Um, and those links have remained open. Um, And with the brief exception of, of, you know, when Malaysia announced a lockdown last week and you suddenly saw this flood of workers um, who suddenly thought they wouldn't be able to come into Singapore for work from Malaysia, uh, that was quickly clarified to say, yes, they would be able to under certain circumstances. Uh, for the most part, you've seen that border remain open. You haven't seen um, kind of very uh, you know widespread uh, disruptions of people moving back and forth with the exceptions of, of just the last few weeks.
0: I'm gonna ask this question once now and then once again in a different way, comparing it in particular to the response of, of uh, Donald Trump um, uh, and how he is waffling between his, you know, what he sees as his twin domestic priorities of uh, security and economics. But uh, Singapore, uh, I really came to be fascinated with the nation through the work of scholarship uh, from Ai Hua Ong, who looks at a lot of things like migrant labor, uh, low levels of labor, and how Singapore, we, we might associate it with global high finance, but it's also heavily involved in these sort of uh, very low wage uh, supply chains, domestic labor, domestic maids, and so on. For um, Singapore and it, its uh, measures it's put into place to manage COVID-19, how has it disrupted, you, you've already alluded to it with Malaysia, how has it disrupted some of these um, low-wage or uh, migrant labor that that Singap- are sort of the hidden processes that a lot of Singaporean uh, capital relies on? And what has been the response of uh, citizens as to how Singapore has met their needs uh, in this time? Has it looked out for both the banker and also maybe the domestic maid from the Philippines who's there on a specialized visa?
1: Well, I think this is a really good point because I, I you know, I think, as you say, the perception of Singapore is, is this high-flying uh, capital, but but to make the city run, there's this, you know, army of, of uh, you know, Low-paid, uh, mostly migrant—really, right? vast majority—migrant labor, as you say, um, from the Philippines, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Myanmar, all around the region. Um, when the government began implementing travel restrictions, you know th- those laborers typically come in, you know, for months uh, at a time, or, or even years in some cases. Um, they don't. There isn't a great deal of travel back and forth uh, between these countries. You know, you come in on a contract, or you come in as a say you're a housekeeper, you, know, you come in to work on a, on a two-year contract for a, a Singaporean family, uh, you might get one trip home every year or every other year. So there isn't a great volume of travel back and forth that way you know, for individual families, for example. Uh, but what there is is um, you know, a lot of questions surrounding uh, you know, whether these, uh, these communities, you know, when they gather in groups, um, can things like social distancing be observed? So one thing the government has been doing um, has been to kind of send the message out that these uh, lower-skilled workers should not be congregating in large groups. Um, they should not be going to you know high-traffic shopping malls on the weekends. Um, they should not be um, you know sharing food, and this kind of a thing they should be observing. You know. Uh, the sort of uh, social hygiene and things like that, that have become now commonplace uh, as we battle the virus in different countries. It's raised a lot of questions about this, again, this kind of upstairs, downstairs uh, way that Singapore functions. And a lot of people who are already uncomfortable with the kind of um, that stratification of society have raised questions about, you know, is, it, is it fair to, uh, to these you know, migrant workers who have maybe one day off in a week uh, to then say, well, you can't go to these places that you typically go to. You can't go to church where it's going to be very crowded. You can't go gather with your friends, uh, have a picnic in the park because it's uh, maybe not safe or not hygienic. Um, you know, can these people be forced to basically stay in their homes where they where they you know work for for Singaporean or expat families? Um, and every you know, there's not been a a rule or a law about that, but the government's been quite um, you know quite Active in promoting that message that you know employers ought to be mindful of this and be talking to their um, to their household staff or, or or you know their 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 maids and, and nannies and this kind of thing. So it has made people quite uncomfortable um, those who aren't really familiar with the way the island works. Um, but I think the government sees this as an important uh, way to both kind of keep uh, things functioning uh, for for the the people that they the high finance folks and the the, uh, the labor, the talent pool that comes from around the world to work here to make sure their lives aren't too disrupted, but also ensure that this population of workers who make the island run um, is not going to, uh, you know, get infected themselves. I think a nightmare scenario would be to have these infections kind of uh, racing through um, that population where, uh, you know, there's there's you know large groups congregating and this kind of a thing. So it's been a balance they've had to strike. Um, and they've tried to do it, I think, in a in a very careful way.
0: And uh, it sounds like they're they're very mindful of what a lot of activists in the U.S. are fearful of. Of we we do not want to associate migrant labor with sort of a dirty, infected other. You're hearing a lot of uh, U.S. advocates talk about that for homelessness. Uh, that because the uh, federal uh, response in the U.S. has been so fragmented and that um, many people are uh, feeling these class tensions in a way in the U.S., um, and Singapore is having to wrestle with some of these as well, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, the the government doesn't like to call attention to the fact that there is this large migrant labor pool, Um, but clearly that's apparent to anyone who sets foot here um, that, that, that that's, you know, the way things work. Um, but at the same time you're exactly right that they the last thing they want is for there to be you know seen to be any kind of a, a problem inside those communities um, and so uh, you know when when you hear these messages coming from the government about uh, you know uh, ensuring that, that these groups don't uh, get together in, in large numbers um, you know I think that's Part of what they're getting at is trying to make sure that infections don't crop up in those communities. And it also has to do with um, keeping life functioning as normally as possible uh, as, as they can during during all this.
0: So immigration is obviously going to be very interesting um, to talk about globally. Singapore is, in, uh, is a microcosm, I think, of some of these questions where uh, it sacrificed its position as an international air hub. Um, a great deal of, of pride in commerce is based around how easy it is to fly into Singapore how well reviewed uh, Changi Airport uh, historically has been and also as, as you sort of alluded to um, the the uh, global pool of talent that Singapore is willing to bring in from its, its highly sort of specialized visa system where uh, visas and immigration are sort of used as a way to bring in uh technocratic managers or certain people to fill specialized functions within Singapore's uh, economy. I'm wondering for immigration and in particular the the unique ways that uh, visas are used as uh, a way to lure talent into Singapore, what are some early m- murmurs or speculation as to how COVID-19 will affect um, immigration within Singapore and and perhaps how this might ripple out globally um, with Singapore being a model we can look at for other global hubs like uh, Shanghai like a Hong Kong and, and so on
1: well I think Singapore you know there's always been this um, this push and pull um, in Singapore between you know trying to be a global city as you point out being a, a you know a magnet for for talent uh, from around the world Um and also, you know, ensuring that you know, it remains a place uh, that can cater to the needs of, of Singaporeans, you know, so not just expats who come in for a few years, but you know, Singaporeans and, and permanent residents. Um, and at a time like this, when you know, not to say that Singapore has any, um, you know, issues with, with uh, medical supplies, but you know, to the extent that people worry about, oh, do we have enough masks? Do we have enough hospital beds? Um, there is, you know, always that question in the back of people's minds about, you know, we have this large, uh, you know, one one quarter or one third of, of the professional workforce is is foreign in Singapore. Um, and so, do we, uh, you know, what priority to what priority do Singaporean passport holders get compared to, you know, foreigners who are you know taxpayers and working here on proper visas and all that and and contributing to uh, Singapore's international reputation. And of course, to its GDP, but at the same time, they're not fully Singaporean, uh, as, as some might uh, argue. So those resource nationalism questions do crop up. It's not something you hear often discussed publicly, but you get enough Singaporeans talking about it. It, it does kind of uh, bubble there below the surface when you have a, a, a health crisis. Um, you know, that's part of the reason why um, the government has been so careful to ensure Uh, Adequate stockpiles of these sorts of things, so that there isn't um, the kind of uh, you know scapegoating of of foreigners or of expats that you might see elsewhere. Um, You know, going forward, I think it's a good question. I think um, you know, so far Singapore has managed this quite well. One interesting thing that's happening in the last week or ten days, as you might have seen, is that um, Singapore, like a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, is now seeing a spike in infections, sort of the the so-called second wave of infections, which are. Uh, which is being driven really by um, Singaporeans and and long-term residents who are coming back to Singapore from uh, Britain and the U.S. and and other parts of the West, bringing infections that were not detected, uh, you know, in in industrialized countries uh, and are now being detected here in Singapore, either upon arrival at temperature screening or, you know, when they kind of self-quarantine for the first 14 days upon arrival. So there is, again, a sense of Um, the expats are not being identified as, you know, vectors of the virus, but there is again, the sense of it's now, you know, the virus is now being uh, imported from, from the West. So I think that's also contributing to some of these discussions. But, you know, I think the idea of Singapore as a a magnet for talent is so ingrained in the way uh, this uh, country works. It's so central to its identity. Singaporeans take such pride in it. I mean, you know, the number of times when I first moved here, about a year and a half ago, people began asking me, oh, where are you from?" And you know, what do you think about Singapore? And they want to hear you praise the efficiency and the safety and all those things. And I think these are all points of pride. I can't really see a dramatic reshuffling of of the visa system, uh, particularly given that you know Hong Kong, which is sort of Singapore's rival in some of these aspects, um, has suffered so much with uh, you know the political unrest and, and of course the virus this year. Um, Singapore was standing to gain um, by the kind of struggles of Hong Kong. So I don't think we're going to see Singapore pull back from that global role, uh, but I do think some of these questions about, uh, you know, who are the resources for, uh, do become a bit more, uh, you know, accentuated when you have a crisis like this.
0: And uh, I I, uh, am reliving a lot of trauma from when I lived in Shanghai in my high-flying days of luxury travel, and I tried to go into a bar Uh, I was well healed then, and uh, I said, oh, you know, I tried to talk to this group of people in the bar, and they said, are you a banker? And I said, no. And they said, well, we don't want to talk to you then. And it's very interesting for me, I bring up that sort of, uh, that uh, non-sequitur, because Singapore uh, and Hong Kong, uh, predominantly Shanghai, uh, less so, I think, but also... It's very interesting that they bring in these pools of technocrats who have long been associated with political projects that I think we could associate with sort of Thatcherism, uh, neoliberal austerity, and privatization. It's so bizarre for me to see, okay, we're going to bring in this global talent to a place like a Singapore or Hong Kong. And then we see neoliberal austerity having hollowed out uh, the state, so hollowed out healthcare systems or privatized them that there's this really strange tension of singapore has world class healthcare um hong kong also has very high levels of healthcare but they're bringing in people who in some ways it looks like their ideology is going to lead to uncalculable damage to the countries they came from uh the us uk and and perhaps australia and i'm wondering for the more capitalist class of singapore is there any reflection if we read uh the the singapore's uh, financial times or business papers are people starting to murmur a little bit about neoliberalism and privatization and that they see the world class care they're able to get in singapore and in new york city um prominent public health care f- uh, experts are going to say it's wuhan too where people are going to be dying in the streets uh, and and coffins are going to be piling up faster than they can be buried. Is there any reflection from the capitalist class that you've heard or, or are starting to see? So I
1: spent some time last week, actually, uh, you know, kind of probing this question for a piece I wrote about how basically, you know, Asia, the, the countries that were at the epicenter of, of the crisis six weeks ago, now look much safer uh, as places to be than um, than the U.S. or the U.K. And I've interviewed a number of Americans who uh, you know live in Singapore, Taiwan, around the region, um, and who are now grateful that they stayed where they were and, and you know gave up plans to fly back to the U.S. in the early days of this when things looked like they might get um, quite difficult uh, in, in Singapore and, and other parts of East Asia. Um, and I spoke to a number of Singaporean. Uh, you know, uh, politicians, uh, diplomats, uh, you know, commentators. And the since I got, you know, I, I was really thinking as and I'm, I'm an American, I was thinking, looking at the kind of shambolic response of my own country from here, that gosh, it just must look like America can't get its act together. And as you say, the, the bodies could be piling up in the streets of our major cities. Um, I was struck by um, the response from many Singaporeans, while while they are, I think they still are a bit baffled by the fact that the U.S. can't get its act together uh, and just now is able to pass a stimulus uh, uh, bill and is just now beginning to get organized on social distancing. Um, there remains a tremendous faith in uh, the American. Uh, private sector and in the American citizens. So a number of people told me, look, your government, you know, you've got a federal system, uh, you know, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing often. You've got different states enacting different policies. California is not Texas and all these kinds of things. It looks quite disjointed and patchwork. At the same time, you know, companies are going to be moving incredibly fast and entrepreneurs are moving incredibly fast on, you know, using AI to develop, drug combinations for treatment, you know, using AI and, and other technology to speed the development of vaccines, um, to, you know, improve the, the throughput in hospitals and this kind of a thing. So there remains an incredible faith in the American, um, uh, you know, entrepreneur and the private sector that I think kind of um, tamps down uh, concerns about, you know, what the American, um, you know, body politic might be doing as far as damaging uh, maybe the image of, you uh, of the American expatriate or the American citizen in Singapore. So I think there's two sides of it. Um, I've not heard a lot of discussion about, well, we ought to, um, you know, export our model elsewhere. Singapore, you know, as you know, a very small country and is very careful not to gloat or to um, to kind of, uh, you know, celebrate when it's done well. It, it plays its cards very close to the chest. It's very uh, you know, speaks very softly often, uh, and it does, certainly does not want to get caught in any kind of a war of words or, or worse between the U.S. and China. Um, Dave, I think what I have heard, um, the other thing I've heard from the Singaporean uh, elite, to the extent that I, I have access to them, is that they find um, the kind of uh, blame game going on between the U.S. and China, at least between Washington and Beijing, to be pretty distasteful. I had one... One Singaporean um, commentator tell me that just no one looks good uh, when you know you've got an American president talking about the Chinese virus and you've got Chinese diplomats, uh, you know, peddling misinformation about where the virus originated. Um, you know, in this idea of who's got the better system, I think Singapore feels like it's got a system that works for it, and it doesn't really want to be dragged into a discussion about what's going to work for for other countries.
0: The U.S. healthcare system. Um... It does not seem like it's managing COVID-19 well. We're hearing reports of people who will go in to get tests and, and walk out with bills in the thousands of dollars. Treatment at this point, uh, it's not clearly defined yet in the stimulus bill, might still run people tens of thousands of dollars. We're hearing reports of doctors wearing garbage bags because they don't have enough uh, protective equipment. And a lot of this also stems from a government that slashed um uh, responses to pandemics in, for the sake of sort of small government principles, we'll let the market sort of figure things out. We don't need a pandemic response. And that Jeremiah aside, which I am getting in, I guess, to, for for my own uh, my own sake, I'm wondering how Singaporeans, when they, if a Singaporean does contact COVID-19, could you walk us through the healthcare process? Is it one that is equitable to all? class backgrounds. So if I'm a migrant laborer and I get COVID-19, would I receive the same level of care or a reasonable level of care that uh, one of the Singapore elites might? And if we just wanted to focus on healthcare, could this be something uh, post-COVID-19 that we need to do differently in the U.S. or maybe should look to Singapore for ways we can improve and reform our response to future pandemics?
1: Well, I'll say two things. First is I think it's hard to generalize, you know, from a country of this size to to one of the size of, of the U.S., uh, which I, I'm sure is an obvious point, you know, five and a half million people versus you know 330 million. Um, the the U.S. Uh, the failings of the U.S. healthcare system aside, you know, Singapore's got a a, a different um, you know situation it's looking at. But I, you've actually asked me this question um, at a very uh, interesting time. So my wife was actually tested for COVID-19 last week in Singapore. I'll just kind of walk you through what happened to her and give you a sense of how things work for us. So, you know, we're Americans here on, you know, I'm here on an employment uh, visa uh, working for a foreign company and and my wife and our kids are here as our, as my dependents. Um, She had, uh, you know, we didn't think she'd come into contact with anybody who was infected, but she had a a sort of a, a nagging cough. And at one point she ran a not a you know very high fever but a you know a moderate fever so she went in to see um, her physician and we thought they might say oh you probably ought to consider going into a hospital and having this checked out what i didn't expect was that she would go you know leave our house go to the doctor and then not come back for 5 days because they were basically she was checked into a hospital immediately from the clinic she was uh they called an ambulance and they sent her to the government hospital it happened so fast that she had to Uh, you know, look up Google Maps from her hospital bed to figure out where she was. Um, It happened very, very quickly. And for the next four days, um, she was in isolation at a government hospital, one of the the several hospitals in the city that are dealing with COVID, uh, suspected COVID cases. Um, She was tested within hours of arriving. Um, The first test came back the the next uh, probably late morning, midday. uh, test came back negative. Um, but they wanted to run a couple more tests to make sure, you know, confirm that that negative uh, finding. And that took three more days. And so she was in the hospital for a total of four nights uh, in isolation. Um, And when she came out finally, um, you know, after four and a half days, uh, the bill was zero. Uh, The government covered the entire cost of her stay, of her tests. There was a CT scan involved to rule out tuberculosis, which they thankfully did. Um, so, you know, quite uh, intensive uh, medical care uh, provided uh, fully free of charge. And I've got, you know, very good health insurance through my employer. Um, we we had spoken to our insurance company back in, in the U.S. and they were prepared to deal with the hospital and, and work out payment um, based on our plan. Uh, yet the government, you know, covered the whole thing. And, and I'm told they did so because this was a precautionary admission to ensure that she wasn't somebody who was at risk. And to this point, Singapore has covered... Uh, the healthcare costs and the testing costs of every uh, Singaporean resident who is suspected of, of being infected with COVID-19. They've just recently, because there was a bit of medical tourism, a lot of people from Indonesia and other parts of the region flocking to Singapore for its hospitals. Uh, they've now begun to charge for non-residents and, and foreigners to, to be tested. Um, but uh, this came, you know, after about a month or so of, of uh of the government, you know, bearing a lot of the cost, really all the cost, uh, you know, in a, in a way to sort of ensure that people were not avoiding healthcare because of, of the fear of, um, of, of you know, uh, the expense. Um, so, again, a, a country like Singapore that's got, you know, at this point, a few hundred infections can maybe afford to do that. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, if it gets to be much, much bigger, you would again begin to see those... Uh, resource allocation questions, uh, come to the fore. Um, but, uh, you know, I know in the U S there's been a big, uh, big debate about costs here. It's something that you really don't hear much about because the government has taken it upon itself to, to cover these costs because it's a, it's a pandemic.
0: And I, I've asked this in every single, uh, interview, uh, since it happened, because I think it's important to establish for Americans to reflect about, um, Uh, politics, our political model, and quite frankly, as you might be able to imagine, uh, for a pan-Asian travel company, we're no fans of exceptionalism, uh, really for any nation. So in the U.S., uh, people know at this point there's uh, a sort of pending investigations into if several politicians uh, sold stocks based on insider trading about the extent of the pandemic uh, having devastated effects on certain industries, uh, predominantly airline and hospitality, so hotels and travel. Has there been any scandal or any um, anything that would cause public rancor within Singapore similar to what we've seen in the US from uh, political figures who maybe have neglected their duties uh, for their benefit as private citizens?
1: You know there really hasn't remarkably uh, there's been nothing like that that I've seen um, you know we've actually had the opposite where we've had um, you know government officials uh, helping to carry out um, or helping to enforce uh, stay at home directives you know you've had I've heard stories of ministers and government officials coming to people's houses and ensuring that the people are observing um, you know the rules whether it's uh, you know uh, visitors or, or residents um, there was a, a brief uh, kind of uh, minor uh, media storm when uh, one particular minister was uh, recorded on tape discussing, you know, whether Singapore had enough masks, um, and he was, uh, you know, seen to be quoted as, as perhaps questioning whether Singapore's stockpile was sufficient, and, and that became a big storm because of the mere kind of. Um, uh, uh suggestion that the island wasn't prepared so no I think uh, as an American it's been kind of remarkable to see um, uh, the government communicating with one voice uh no uh, real reports about profiteering or anything like this um, so much of it is run through the government anyway these are all public hospitals the um, you know as you may know Singaporean public servants and and government employees are paid tremendously well you know you have, uh, uh, ministers earning north of a million dollars uh, an annual salary, um, in some cases. So uh, these are these people are well compensated, um, and there's this kind of you know zero tolerance for corruption. So I uh, just you know it's nothing like what what we've seen um, uh, in in the U.S. and and probably other other countries in dealing with this.
0: The worst thing about questioning American exceptionalism, you don't want to make all your interview questions about America. But I do have to ask one final one. And so Trump recently, uh, President Trump was recently quoted as saying he does not want the cure to be worse than the disease, Um, uh, essentially hinting at a long-term shutdown of economic activity uh, would be a worse consequence or one he's weighing um, in comparison to a greater loss of life that he is hinting at. Other Republican lawmakers have hinted at. they would be willing to sacrifice uh, a certain uh, percentage of citizens in order to save the economy or to, to mitigate economic damage. And it's been very interesting throughout Asia in multiple models, uh, a Singapore that we typically associate with high finance and, and capital, uh, a Korea that has very strong liberal and conservative uh, elements uh, like the US, a China that's mostly autocratic along with uh Uh, Hong Kong that's vacillating between (laughs) various forms of governance. And finally, uh, I think relatively vibrant and healthy democracies, um, Korea as well, uh, in Taiwan and uh, Japan. And I'm wondering if if a Singaporean politician uh, floated uh, this line of logic of of a President Trump, uh, if uh, the current leader of Singapore said, we have to make sure the cure isn't worse than the disease. Would would this have been something that was, um, would this be something that was accepted by Singaporean society, or despite its reputation and how it's often framed as sort of where the elite go to manage technocratic economic systems, do you believe, based on your knowledge and expertise in Singapore, that they would have pulled out all the stops, uh, economy be damned? Uh, if uh, COVID nineteen had not been controlled in the very efficient way it has so far,
1: yeah, it's a it's a really good question. You know, it's um, it's it's the balance that Singapore strikes between being, you know, a, a modern and, and terribly efficient uh, global financial capital, uh, and also being, you know, dominantly ethnic Chinese, um, uh, an Asian civilization that you know prides itself on. Ah, kind of uh, you know family and 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 those types of things. You know it's a bit of a stereotype, but I think it's one that has a you know a, a certainly a, a quite a strong kernel of truth, which is that um, you know Singapore, um, you know, for all of its uh, you know kind of uh, vaunted uh, uh, you know competence and and systems, um it does not have a social safety net, you know, so um, elderly uh, Singaporeans uh, often work. you know if you've been to the island, you've seen, you know elderly folks uh, 70s 80s uh, sometimes pushing uh, trolleys at hawker centers uh, cleaning up you know doing custodial work in in you know fancy condo buildings and this kind of thing so it is um, a place where uh, where you know elderly folks are are supposed to to earn their keep as well there isn't um a pension system you know families take take care of, of the elderly here so the idea of sacrificing that generation, um, I don't think, would be one that would be readily um, accepted by most people. At the same time, you know, it's a different mentality. Is like, like I said, it's not a place where people get put into old folks' homes um, or or get uh, you know um, social security. It's a place where uh, these are contributing members to society. I think, in a very um, kind of practical calculus, which Singapore is known for, um, these people. Also work, and they would not want to lose a portion of their workforce. Uh, a sacrifice them either. Everyone is expected to contribute their their share here in Singapore. So, um, I think when you're a small country, you know, 5.5, 5.7 million people, the idea of culling, you know, even even a small portion, um, doesn't really fly when when everybody is contributing in in some way.
0: Thank you. That was a really helpful framing. Um, the last uh, maybe two questions here. Uh, the Trace Together app is very interesting and it's been covered by another journalist in Singapore I respect, uh, Kirsten Hahn, formerly of New Narrative. She's written a column for the New York Times about POFMA, freedom of speech in Singapore and some of these questions it's, it's facing. I'm wondering for COVID-19, what surveillance measures could Singapore simply redirect to try to manage and mitigate this virus? What was newly built or newly uh, put into place specific for COVID-19? And what might a critic like a, a Kirsten Hahn uh, and others who've raised issues about POFMA uh, and freedom of speech in the past worry about will remain once the COVID-19 crisis passes?
1: Well, this is another great question for the future to see, you know, what uh, what actually you know, we call it the scope creep is one term I've used, uh, I heard used, which is that these tools that governments are using, um, you know, could could just be redirected or extended. You know, the, the app I mentioned toward the, the start of our conversation um, is uh, that Singapore has rolled out. It's called Trace Together. And basically it, it works by exchanging uh, Bluetooth signals Um you know, between uh, other users of you know users of the app, uh, basically it basically allows officials to track the people who might be carrying the infection. It's very easy to see how uh, that could be. You know, even though you're enrolling in the app on a voluntary basis, uh, you know, because the the cell phone carriers in Singapore are you know uh, partially government owned. It's very easy to see how that could become something that, that could become mandatory for government surveillance or for government, uh, you know, for security reasons. Um, so these tools are out there. It's really a question of how governments choose to use them and, and what people are willing to tolerate. You know, in Singapore, as I said, we've, um, the residents here have uh, you know, made a deal where they've foregone uh, some level of personal freedom and, and freedom of speech and things like this. For you know, and, and therefore gained a great deal of efficiency and and uh, high quality of life. Um, you know how much people will be willing to forego, having gone through this experience. You know that that balance could change. You know, Kirsten has been very outspoken, and I think you know very eloquently so about the dangers of the uh, of POFMA and, and mission creep. There, you know, POFMA, uh, is meant to target fake news, and early on in COVID nineteen, um, the government made it. Very plain that they would use PULFMA to target people who are spreading false information about uh, COVID-19 uh, for the sake of public health. Now, again, you cannot find fault with that. Really, if if people are are using this law to combat um, rumors and hoaxes, um, that's that's great. That could possibly save lives and could certainly you know help uh, mitigate uh, the, the epidemic here. But where do you stop with that? You know, who determines what something you know what's fake? Uh, the way the law is constructed, uh, any minister in the government has the power to determine, you know, what uh, what constitutes, you know, dangerous or, or illegal speech, and so uh, you can easily see how that could be uh, taken too far or or you know, misused in the wrong hands. So these are really important questions. I think we're seeing them crop up in other countries as well, from the UK to Israel to to Korea. The, the levels of technology being brought to bear on this problem are are stunning. Um, they have saved lives. There's no question, uh, but it's a, a really an important thing to look for as to how how much they become ingrained in the systems in these countries, and really depends on the vigilance of people like Kirsten, the vigilance of journalists and of civil society to uh, keep asking
0: questions and, and
1: ensure that uh, you know privacy rights are not violated. So
0: I'd like to conclude by. Um focusing on something positive uh, in your most recent story, I believe your most recent story, you, you talk about uh, a figure named Zhipeng Li, who created uh, this website, co.vid19.sg, which uh, Singapore has publicly available data, and he used this as a, as a way for people to uh, clearly and quickly sort of see for themselves uh, the, the scope of COVID-19, who it's affected, and so on within Singapore. Now, my understanding of this is it was a volunteer effort. In this conversation, you've sort of alluded to Singaporeans as a society cooperating. What is the story of Ji Peng and him taking it upon himself to create this website uh, just to help his fellow Singaporeans feel more at ease? What does it say to you about how we while we do obviously need our governments, we also can step up individually as citizens. And then, for people who don't have maybe the programming acumen of a Pengli, what are the ordinary ways you've seen Singaporeans come together and help one another in this time of crisis?
1: So Jipang Lee, I mean, i I wanted to write about him. My colleague and I, David Pearson, yeah, we did the story together and and I, Wanted to write about him because I'd been to a couple of social events. Uh, we still have those here uh, to some degree, um, where uh, people had said, Oh, have you seen the Singapore government app that's tracking the infections? And um, I had to tell people, because I'd been following this app, this is not a government app. This is a, a private individual um, who runs a, a coding school, who's a programmer, um, who has taken the publicly available data that the Ministry of Health has been putting out every day and creating his own dashboard with, um, you know, charts, tracking, uh, you know, length of hospital stay uh, of infections, you know, where people have been put in the hospital, how the different infections are connected to one another. Um, Pretty interesting uh, visualizations that um, other countries had not come up with, either government or private. Um, And so it was just a a cool example of uh, someone um, you know, trying to make things uh, more digestible, more understandable. One thing that was really interesting was this network of infections to see how you know case fifty-one connected to case hundred and twenty, and this kind of a thing. Um, so uh, he, you know, it's a volunteer effort. He gets no money out of it. He spends his own time doing it. He uh, got so much feedback uh, from around the world. He he's thought about launching similar apps in in other countries. Uh, unfortunately, no one's data is quite as thorough. Uh, as Singapore's data. So it's a bit tough to launch something of the same magnitude, the same kind of uh, level of detail uh, in the U.S. as it would be in Singapore. But um, anyway, what, what, what you said is right, which is that, um, uh, you know, this was a, a, a kind of a citizen's effort to just make things a bit more understandable and clear. Um, and In Singapore, you know, there's not been a tremendous amount of sort of charity work or, or you know, kind of Good Samaritan uh, work in part because the government already does so much of that, uh, the government handed out masks, um, you know, uh, free of charge to families in the first couple of weeks of the, of the crisis. Um, you do see private companies um, uh, handing out sanitizer and this kind of thing. Mostly, you just kind of see, uh, you know, one-off gestures. People. Um, you know, uh, you know, offering you a, a bit of hand sanitizer if you're at the Botanic Gardens, or uh, people observing social distancing and being sure not to stand too close to each other. Uh, people, uh, you know, as as I think those of us who spend time in Asia know, the etiquette when it comes to wearing face masks and and coughing and this kind of thing is much more um, observed here. People are quite careful about germs uh, in a way that maybe we aren't so careful in the U.S. And so. That etiquette has become very apparent to me. People um, are quite, seem quite comfortable with the distancing and quite good about washing hands. And um, that's been uh, something that I've noticed uh, has you know, sort of stuck out to me. So I don't think because things have been relatively under control here, we haven't seen the need for major um, outreach uh, because it's just not, not been that bad. Only two fatalities, you know, so far, which is which is just kind of stunning when you think about um, the exposure Singapore has to, to to China and to the other countries gripped by the epidemic. So, um, anyway, all that is is a way of saying that that um, uh, you know it's it's been a, a pretty nice place to to ride this out for the time being. It, it could yet change. The measures are getting stricter. Singapore, as of tomorrow, is closing. Uh, all bars and uh, religious establishments, and uh, we're going down to, to no groups more than 10. Uh, so following the CDC guidelines in the U.S. Uh, because of the surge of, of infections recently. So things could yet tighten up, but for the most part, it's been um, very uh, uh, v- as normal in Singapore as we could expect given what's happening elsewhere in the world.
0: I, I guess the only thing I'd want to mention, because I know it'll mean a lot to people, there's nothing in the way of Chinese virus language or attacks on Chinese Singaporeans like we're seeing in Western countries currently.
1: no, nothing like that you know the Chinese Singaporeans are you know a huge number here um, yeah there, there's been no uh kind of um, you know ethnic scapegoating to that degree what what I've heard uh, you know rumblings of is some questions about. Uh, you know the migrant communities. So, again, this gets back to you know are the uh, are the migrant laborers uh, able to to ensure the same levels of of uh, physical distancing and other things that the government wants everyone to implement? Just because of, of the difficult conditions they live in, very tightly packed together, often uh, uh, working long hours. Um, so, I've not seen anything open that, that would indicate that there's. Um, uh, you know any kind of uh, uh, tension there, but I, I think that would be the the one place where people would just have questions about um, hygiene and, and and safety.
0: Well, I think it was an important observation. Your note that the world is watching, um, and uh, these uh, the goodwill that the West has built up uh, in places like Singapore and uh, certainly through Hollywood. Um, if this racism continues unabated, I think that it quite possibly could be eroded. And so it's a good reminder to always remember that the world is watching. um, And I hope uh, that our leaders in the U.S. will take that to heart. Shashank, um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? And uh, where can people find you if they want to follow your reporting on Singapore and Asia?
1: Uh, so, please visit uh, latimes.com. Uh, you can find my articles there and, and those of uh, my colleagues. You know, I think we're like every news organization, it seems like uh, we're, you know, every, everyone is a coronavirus reporter right now. Uh, mm-hmm. So, we're all very, very busy covering this uh, pandemic from, uh, you know, Southern California to, to East Asia. And I'm on Twitter at Bengali. So, please get in touch if. Uh, If you have any questions about Singapore or just want to know more about how we're recovering this story. But thank you very much for your time, Matt. It's been really great chatting with you.